This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Dave Repture barely survived a helicopter crash. It left him with burns over 90% of his body. And for a time, he lay in a hospital bed hallucinating. Only the sound of his wife Amanda's voice could bring him back to reality. So she made a recording for the nurses to play when she couldn't be by his side. Hi, Dave. It's Amanda. You're at University Hospital in the burn intensive care unit. I'm over at the apartment just five minutes away, and I'll be back to see you again in just a little bit. The crash was three years ago, and I met the Reptures at that apartment they're still renting right next to the CU Medical Center, a place where they hope to spend much less time because they're moving back home to the mountains. Hi. Hey, guys. Dave, I'm Ryan. Hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having us. Dave was dressing his burns as we walked in. Three years later, there are still problem spots. Just with the burn process, uh, I just lost the ability to make pigment in my skin, and it's very thin and fragile, and I also lost the ability to sweat. I really only have two little patches I can sweat from my forehead and my right chest, and so they have to work overtime. But uh, temperature regulation is a big challenge. Uh, I feel like a reptile. Now, before we talk about the hundreds of medical procedures he's had, before we talk about the $100 million settlement reached in his case, which could make air travel safer, let's go back to July 2015. Dave and Amanda had been on vacation. We had just gotten back from the Middle Fork River and had an incredible trip. Uh, One of our favorite trips, best ones. Activity was at the center of their lives together, camping, hiking. It's a big reason they lived in the mountains. But it was back to work for Dave, a flight nurse, who, as he had countless times before, boarded a helicopter at St. Anthony Summit Medical Center in Frisco. Dave, the flight that crashed was not a rescue flight. You were on a mission to tell kids about what you do. That day, yeah, we were heading to Gypsum for, uh, I like to call them uh, touch-a-truck days. There's Touch-a-truck. There's, uh, <laughs> you know, there's helicopters and fire trucks and ambulances and you know everyone everyone brings their stuff out for kids to look at and you know turn the sirens on or whatever and and they're usually a fun time but just after lifting off still on hospital grounds the helicopter crashed i remember an impact and that's it it's i can't tell you anything about the impact i just remember an impact and then how far up were you according to the reports you're about 100 feet I had no sense of that, and then I didn't think I got knocked out, but obviously I was unconscious for a little bit. If you look at the tape and stuff like that, you look at the tape. That it was caught on security footage and uh, with multiple cameras. With multiple cameras, and I guess my next memory after the impact was, I don't know if you remember, like the cold bucket challenge or whatever it was called. Oh, the ice bucket challenge. Ice bucket challenge. Uh-huh. To me, that's what it was. It was uh, like someone dumped a five-gallon bucket of cold liquid right across my shoulders. And it turns out it was jet fuel. That was what my first recollection was. And then it was just fire. And I didn't know where I was. That I remember I didn't really know anything. I just knew I had to get out. I pushed the door off and ran away from the helicopter. This is all from the video footage. And I was just... I, couldn't get away from the flames, I guess, because I was, it was all me. Every direction I turned, I was in, it was in flames, I guess, because I was fully engulfed in fire. And I remember this guy on the, yelling at me to get on the ground and roll, and 
I did and ended up rolling down this hill next to the bike path there. And here's this poor guy. He's just out enjoying a beautiful Summit County day, riding his bike. And next thing, he's he's witness to this horrific thing. And he's sitting there scooping dirt off the side of the trail, trying to get the fire out on me. And it wasn't until the crew ran in from the ER with a fire extinguisher before they finally got the flames out. And they just scooped me up on the backboard, and they had to go a long ways to get into the ER. And, boy, they were working hard. That was that was a lot to carry. And uh, we got to the ER, and I was calling out orders. Once a nurse, always a nurse. Yeah, I, Even I was, when the nurse is the patient. Yeah, and I was telling them, it's like, you're going to have to intubate me. I took in a lot of smoke and fire, and I don't know how long my airway is going to last. You're going to have to intubate, intubate me right away, and... They, I think, were just trying to reassure me, I guess, going in and got in there. And they were really having a hard time finding access for medication on me because I was so badly burned. And when they finally did, and that's when I looked up at Ron and said, tell Amanda I love her. And then it was just black. The crash ultimately killed the pilot, Patrick Mahaney, and injured Dave's fellow flight nurse, Matt Bowe, though less severely. As we came to learn, video of the incident and that splash from the fuel tank proved pivotal in the case against the helicopter's manufacturer, Airbus, and its operator, Air Methods. Meanwhile, across town, Amanda Repture's phone rang. It was a colleague at the hospital, Amanda is a nurse too, and this co-worker explained there'd been a crash. Dave was alive, but she should come to the hospital fast. And it was July 3rd in Summit County, which is bursting at the seams with traffic and people. And, and a lot of people have asked me what I said or what I was thinking or what I did during that drive, and I honestly don't remember. I just know we needed to get to the hospital. And when we did, I, I jumped out and I ran into the ER. And I got into Dave's room and I took one look at him. And I knew he was so badly burned. I just looked up and I said, you know, uh, what's his core temperature? How much fluid have you given him? (laughs) And I just went into nurse mode and everybody was like, Amanda, we got it. We got it. And uh, I just stayed with him and everybody was doing their job. And it was an incredible feat for all those people in that ER because it wasn't just Dave it was also Patrick and Matt and all three were critical and all these healthcare workers that they knew it it was all family taking care of family in a time of incredible crisis and I've thought about that that there's not too many times I think that you can look at a situation like that for the medical team and they were all doing their job amazingly so when the helicopter came to get Dave. Take him to Denver. Take him to Denver. I knew I couldn't fly. I mean, I know all about all of that, but I asked anyways because I was honestly afraid he wasn't going to make it to Denver and I wanted to be there with him. And of course, that wasn't an option. We loaded him into the helicopter and the winds had started blowing and the rain was starting and Peter, the chief flight nurse, was hanging on to me and I looked at him and I just said, are we putting him really putting him back in a helicopter right now is he going to be okay and he just said yeah they'll be okay amanda 
And I knew if he wasn't in a helicopter and he didn't get to the burn center as fast as he could, he wasn't going to make it. So they lifted off. And then I went into the ER and I said I needed to see Patrick. And our friend was outside the front door and he just looked at me and said, the door was closed and he said Amanda he didn't make it and I opened the door and I walked in and Karen was there with Patrick it was just the two of them and I hugged her and we were both crying and she said Amanda I don't know how I'm gonna make it without him and I said I know and the whole time I thought this is gonna be me and I didn't know how I was gonna do that I walked out of the room and I collapsed and they put me on the triage gurney and and then that's when Ron, the nurse who had been taking care of Dave, came up to me and I didn't know him. And he said, you don't know me, but I was taking care of Dave and I need to tell you that the last thing he said before we put him out was, tell Amanda I love her. So, so you got that message. I did. And those words were very powerful. I hung on to them for a long, long time. Because it would be a while before he spoke to you again. Five and a half months. The first five and a half months I was sedated. And then uh, when I woke up on December 14th, I had little lucid intervals, I guess. And then battling the septic shock, my mental status would change. And uh, for most of my hospitalization, I was hallucinating. I was, I was off in a different place and... It's something now that I can look back and laugh at some of these places, but at the time was it felt completely real. It was every sensation, every look, feel, smell, everything about those hallucinations was 100% real to me at the time. You know, I mean, he was all over the place. He was working, taking patients. He was <laughs> flying in foreign countries. One day you thought there was, you were in the subway shop, was in your hospital room. Yeah, and right. I mean, it's just... Wait, this, like a subway, like a subway sandwich restaurant, shop yeah. was in your hospital room? Yeah. yeah. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, I was in thrift stores. I was in Honduras. Almost like a, like what people might associate with a fever dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but long lasting. Mm-hmm. Yep. What were your ways of calming him down? talking to him and uh, being present with him and, and, you know, touching him and mm-hmm. letting him know that I was there. I mean, every day before he woke up, I would tell him what happened and talk him through things and say, you know, you were burned, but your head, your neck and your back are okay. Because I wanted him to know that he was, even though he was laying in bed, that he wasn't paralyzed and he wasn't um, dealing with a severe traumatic brain injury. Once he was aware, and then he would go in and out and into the hallucinations, it was a matter of me bringing him back to reality. And so I would just tell him where he was, and sometimes it was challenging. I mean, there was one day with the tactile hallucinations that he just felt like something was poking at him, and his mom and I just kept moving everything mm. in the bed and, and his hands, and he was complaining about, you know, that he, he wanted the scissors. He just wanted the scissors to cut what was poking him in the back and we had rolled him and changed all of his sheets and done everything. And I finally, I just went and got two popsicle sticks and I put them in his hand and I was like, here's your scissors, cut it away. And he did, he like, he reached over and he was just like poking at it and I was like, is that better? And we're like, yeah. Amanda came every day. I, I don't know if you knew, but like she was by my side every day. 
for as long as she could do it and go home just to rest a little bit, hopefully. The fact that Dave had made it even this far is arguably a miracle. Doctors had actually given him a below zero chance of survival. There's a formula that the burn team uses to calculate survivability when you first come in. It's based on your age, the extent of the burn, and complications that you face. So Dave's kidney failure, renal failure in the first 24 hours, the fact that he developed compartment syndrome and had to have his belly opened up and all of his extremities opened up, all of that factored together to give him a negative chance of survival. And they told me that it was a negative chance of survival, but we're going to tell you because Dave is obviously very well loved and has a lot of support and he's incredibly fit, we're going to give you a 10% chance. And we didn't find out until later in his medical record that it was actually a 140% mortality rate. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and today we're sharing the story of Dave and Amanda Repsher. Dave, a flight nurse, was nearly killed in a Flight for Life helicopter crash in 2015 in Frisco. When we come back, he finally takes a turn for the better, and the couple takes on big corporations that they say knowingly put people's lives in jeopardy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's a survival story that makes you wonder, could I have made it through what they did? Flight nurse Dave Repture was burned over 90% of his body after a Flight for Life helicopter crashed shortly after takeoff. This was in Frisco in 2015. His wife Amanda, herself a nurse, learned that doctors had given him a below zero chance of survival. Three years on, Dave is still in and out of the hospital. The couple moved temporarily to Aurora to be close to his doctors at CU. I've seen 43 specialties, I think, at that hospital. 43? I didn't even know there were that many, Dave. Yeah, I think 42. 42. I I mean, I I didn't Mm -hmm. realize that there were that many either. I would joke with people in the hospital. I'll say, I know there's one we're never going to hit. That's OB. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The ruptures have kept their sense of humor, their hope. And they owe that partly to a burn psychologist who's worked with them. As many specialists as Dave has seen, he's had even more procedures. I asked him to name a few. I don't know if it would be easier, but I've had 52 surgeries. I've, you know, it's 51? Yeah, I think 51. 51 surgeries. Um, But that's actual trips to the OR. And then... So he's had multiple other procedures at the bedside and... Hundreds. Hundreds of things like that. That includes a cochlear implant. Dave was on such strong antibiotics, they affected his hearing. But he really only started to turn a corner to feel human again after a kidney transplant. Why did you need a new kidney? So part of the burns process obviously can damage your kidneys with all the uh, material that gets released into your bloodstream and basically clogs them up. And then also the 10 months of antibiotics I was on. So we... When we finally got out of the hospital and could look forward to coming home to the apartment, I was doing dialysis at the hospital still. 
and we were getting trained to do dialysis at home. This whole apartment, it was stacked to the ceiling with boxes, and we had the dialysis machine right next to where you're sitting. And That was his dialysis yeah, chair. Was, where oh, okay, I'm in the dialysis <laughs> chair. All right. And, uh, it keeps you alive, but you're certainly not living. And in August of last year, I had my transplant. My health is better, dramatically better. My stamina is better. I can be out in the heat. I can sweat. I can drink. I can eat. All these things was one of the biggest things that we could get. It meant returning to their active lifestyle, even if it isn't quite like before. Sometimes I can't help but think when I go out and do some of these same hikes and stuff that I used to go run around and now it takes me two hours of huffing and puffing to get around you know it's just uh things like that i guess have changed amanda says dave has been hiking himself back to health but good health isn't the only thing they've worked for they also want justice the helicopter crash shouldn't have been as deadly and destructive as it was the fuel tank that led to dave's burns was unnecessarily flimsy so was his seat the fuel system on board was not a crash-resistant fuel system, and the fuel tank ruptured. Does this explain that cold splash that Dave remembers feeling? Yes. And and then his seat... Basically, it's like a a milk jug that you're sitting right in front of. It's it's no thicker than, I think it was, from some of the stuff, it was 11 millimeters thick. And it's just plastic. It's uh, rotomodal plastic, very brittle. And you're sitting right in front of it. And then the seat was not rated to the latest standards for a crash impact. It was an aftermarket seat. And Dave was actually ejected with the seat still attached to him. It came off of the helicopter. And he was ejected headfirst into the fuel spill. It was basically built off of standards from 1965. And that's all they had to build up to. And Dave, do you give it some thought that your your life was changed by 11 millimeters of plastic? It's just, the word I've used is disappointment. You know, the people buying and developing those helicopters, it's just disappointing that they they knew it was out there. Ours wasn't the first crash. The FAA has known about this since the... The 70s, the 60s, Vietnam War, when all this technology was being developed. I mean, the military was the first one to adapt most of these standards. They realized that people were unnecessarily dying Mm -hmm. in post-crash fires when they were not injured. And they fixed the problem. In other words, the crash isn't the problem necessarily. It's the aftermath, which is a surprising realization, of course. Yeah, I mean, at some point, physics takes over. If you have a crash hard enough, Hmm. unfortunate things are going to happen. But all you want is a fighting chance. What do you most hope for in the future? Well, our biggest hope going forward was that even if one person, and that's it, if just one person in the future can walk away from something like this, then it'll all be worth it. We hope it'd be more than that. A lot of people need to take a little more responsibility for this. and Industry needs to change their behavior The regulators need to change their behavior. There needs to be greater awareness amongst the the people getting into these helicopters. And, you know, it's not just aeromedical. There's companies in the Grand Canyon that are flying 600,000 people annually. 
with these same kinds the same of fuel kind of helicopters. Sightseeing news. Hawaii. Um, the law, uh, enforcement. law enforcement. Yeah. There's helicopters. The U.S. utilizes the most helicopters in the world, and people have no idea of what they're stepping into. As for what caused the crash, federal investigators said it was likely a preventable hydraulic issue. The ruptures sued the manufacturer Airbus and the operator Air Methods and eventually settled for $100 million. Airbus has started equipping its new helicopters with crash-resistant fuel tanks, and Air Methods told the Denver Post earlier this year that it's begun retrofitting old ones. The ruptures will use some of the money for a new foundation, partly to help other burn survivors. But the settlement will also pay for Dave's lifelong medical care. I wouldn't wish this upon anyone, but seeing how people can come together when they really want to, it's been been really special. It's stra- we were, strangers. We were at friends. the Fourth of July parade in Frisco, and a woman that we didn't recognize came up and just had tears in her eyes and said, "Can I hug you both?" And <laughs> she gave us both a hug, and she's like, "I pray for you both every day, and you're just amazing." Mm-hmm. And I mean, what do you do with that except share and mm-hmm. pay it forward and? You know, just do what you can to help others. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Dave and Amanda Repture on their long journey together back to health. They hope to move back to Silverthorne, their home and playground, any day now. There are photos from our visit at CPR.org. Michelle Fulcher produced this segment with audio engineer Michael Hughes and music by Poddington Bear. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We've told you on our show that the state's economy is, by almost any measure, zooming along. Job growth, business formation, wages are all rising. But even the best economy doesn't serve everyone. And hidden in the averages are frustrated workers and companies. CPR business reporter Ben Marcus explains. Every time I do a story on how great Colorado's job market is, I get emails from people who say they don't see it. Nancy Profera is one of them. We met at her Denver apartment. We asked her what she does for a living. She launches into a description of how she's been a writer and an editor for corporate communications. And then she stops. I think your question was, what do I do? <laughs> and what I've been doing the last six months is applying to jobs like crazy and getting... I've had one, one bite. And that bite didn't lead anywhere. Profera moved here last year from California. She's living on savings as she continues to search for a job. She says it's been frustrating just how impersonal the experience is these days. She did a job interview where questions flashed on her computer screen, and her responses were recorded through the camera. There's no human on the other end. She didn't make the next round. The only response I could get, there was a human at this point on the other end, which often it feels like you're talking to robots. I mean, and um, I said, well, could you at least tell me how many people you you did that next stage with? I figured maybe three to seven. I talked to some of my friends. How many people do you think they're doing this video interview with? They had done 20 people. Profera says she's applying for jobs that she's clearly qualified for. She never had trouble in the past getting interviews. And so then I do get a little down and mired in the, well, maybe it's my age. I'm 50, and they can see that, and you can't hide that on your resume. She admits that when she was younger, 50 did seem old. 
But there's something else she's up against. Prefera is, by official measures, a member of the long-term unemployed, out of the workforce for more than half a year. Martin Shields, an economist with Colorado State University, says the research shows that the longer people are out of work, the harder it gets to find work. If you're out of work for a long time, your skills erode, your networks wash away, uh, it's hard to get back into the job market. So there are some people, I think, that are probably still not finding the labor market uh, to be welcoming them. And this should be the most welcoming job market ever. Employers rank the shortage of workers as their top concern in surveys. The state's unemployment rate has been at or below 3% for almost two years. It's one of the lowest rates in the nation. But you're right. uh, With the great shortage of workers that we have in the country and in the state, it's just really surprising that we don't see these people finding something that's suitable. That's Richard Wabakin, an economics professor at CU Boulder. He actually expected Colorado's economy would slow because there weren't enough workers to fill jobs. But surprisingly, the wages are going up enough to bring people back. Potentially we're generating enough higher quality jobs that some of the people who have been on the sidelines who lost high paying jobs are finally saying, you know, this is worth getting back into the labor force. You know, we're at a threshold just in terms of salaries. And the percentage of people working or seeking employment has risen substantially in Colorado compared to other states. That's helped employers to fill jobs. But finding skilled workers in some professions, especially construction or healthcare, is a major challenge. Miranda Hutchison, a dentist who runs Station Dental, says she searched for a hygienist for five months. She's often on social media groups for dental professionals. You know, you'll have one hygienist put an application, hey, I'm moving to Colorado, and you'll see like 40 dentists like throwing (laughs) themselves at this person like, hey, we need someone. There's a severe shortage of hygienists in Colorado. Miranda runs a business with her husband, Brad, who says they've had to up their benefits to attract talent. We've you know, recently introduced a 401k. So that's our first step all along those lines. Um, we can offer free dentistry. That's pretty, <laughs> pretty easy for us to do. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a struggle finding ways to get people to want to even come interview. There's only so much they can do as a small business with fewer resources than, say, a larger dentistry chain. But this illustrates a larger point. No matter how good the economy seems on the surface, some people and businesses will be left out, whether it's the long-term unemployed or healthcare businesses desperate for skilled workers. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. How much oil and gas drilling is too much in Colorado? How close should it be to homes? And what's the effect on property values? Those contentious issues, along with health, will be hashed out this election year in Colorado. This week, the Secretary of State cleared two oil and gas measures for the ballot. CPR's energy and environment reporter Grace Hood is here to walk us through this. Hi, Grace. Hey there. Your beat just got very interesting in this election year, didn't it? Boy, did it ever. Yeah, this is going to be your full-time focus, (laughs) I have a feeling. So Colorado voters are going to be hearing a lot about setbacks between oil wells and homes. What exactly is a setback and what would prop 112. Do I have that right? What would it do? So this is the distance between where the well is and where homes or other occupied structures are. And right now you can't build a well within 500 feet of a home uh, or 1,000 feet of a high occupancy building like an apartment. Proposition 112 would increase the distance to 2,500 feet. 
that's a pretty big jump. And the distance would also apply to playgrounds and rivers and streams. 2,500 feet all over the state and for all types of buildings. Uh, And as you say, natural features as well. A state report from the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission estimates as much as half of Colorado land would be off limits if voters approve these greater setbacks. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that the industry opposes Prop 112. Why do environmental groups think think it's necessary? A Firestone home explosion killed two people and injured one person last year. Right. That explosion was linked to an Anadarko well. And I I really wonder to what extent this issue will become a referendum on preventing another Firestone-type incident. The group promoting this proposition, Colorado Rising, cites a 2012 University of Colorado health study that found that people living within 2,600 feet of wells have an increased risk uh, of health effects. Now, the oil and gas industry says this measure would be costly. It would prompt lawsuits. The industry pumps millions back to local economies in the form of property and severance taxes. So this is going to be very hard fought. The oil and gas industry and its political interest group, Protect Colorado, has millions to fight the measure. So get ready to see those ads on TV. Okay, then the second ballot measure, Amendment 74. It is supported by the oil and gas industry, and it seeks to bolster property rights across Colorado. Of course, oil and gas is a is a property and a right. How, how would 74 work? So it's run by the Colorado Farm Bureau, and this would allow Coloradans to make a financial claim on property that's devalued because of government action. The proposal, as you mentioned, would protect uh, property, um, I'm sorry, water and mineral rights in addition to physical property. Okay, so it could be beyond the oil and gas Correct. question yeah. here. And, and what would the change mean? So there's something called a takings claim under Colorado law. And right now, someone can only get compensation from a direct government action when it deprives them of nearly all of their property, say like 90, 95 percent. The change to the state constitution would broaden that range so property owners can get compensated if property is reduced in fair market value by the government. So this measure is opposed by the Colorado Municipal League, which says that it could have a real chilling effect on cities and counties' ability to govern. What happens if voters decide to approve both the bigger setbacks and support more property rights for mineral rights owners? Well, I think it's going to be a pretty big legal mess for a while. I'm not a legal expert. So I spoke with uh, one who works on the environmental law side of things and someone else who specializes in oil and gas. Okay. As you can imagine, they have uh, different takes on on how the, the courts would, would look at this. The environmental lawyer says that the setbacks initiative, he thinks it really would hold up in court. And he says that's because it's seeking to protect health and safety. It's not arbitrarily going after the industry. Hmm. Um, Now, the oil and gas industry attorney I spoke to says that he thinks the industry really could successfully challenge these setbacks in court. Uh, Thus leading to the legal fights. (laughs) No clear answers. Why do you think oil and gas issues are shaping up to be such big issues in this election, Grace? Well, as someone who's covered this issue very closely for more than three years, this is not happening right now by accident. This issue has really been churning in the background for a while. Environmental groups unsuccessfully tried two years ago to get this issue in front of voters. They didn't have enough signatures. I think the Firestone home explosion really changed 
changed the picture in 2017. And um, as we talked about, the industry has million for, for advertising. Environmental groups have hundreds of people that they want to deploy to knock on doors and really prompt one-on-one conversations about energy. So I think that these ongoing conversations and this battle is just going to be so fascinating to watch. I just want to point out to listeners that you and Ben Marcus did a, a deep dive, a reporting dive into Firestone. And those stories are at CPR.org, a question of, of what the ramifications of that explosion were. And we're seeing yet another one in an election year. That's right. Thanks, Grace, for Thank being you. with us. CPR's energy reporter, Grace Hood, talking about two issues in front of voters this election. Prop 112 would increase setbacks. Amendment 74, as we said, aims to protect property rights, including mineral rights. On Fridays, we're airing a special series about education from American public media. And this week, you'll hear from students who were the first in their families to go to college. Now, this was back in 2008, and the documentary finds out what happened to them a decade later. Today, we're going to do something similar, an update on a student profiled by CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine in 2013. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Ryan. Before we learn what happened to this young woman you profiled, I'd love to give listeners some context. How many high school students move on to two- or four-year colleges in this state? About 55% of high school graduates move on, and there's a lot of inequity across the state. The range is really quite staggering. So you take Aspen School District, it sends the most, 75% of its students, but just a two and a half hour drive west of Aspen, the Plateau Valley District, sends the least, just 13%. 75% versus 13 I gather income, race, ethnicity must factor into this? Yes. Uh, Colorado, first of all, it has a big equity goal, and it's had it for Several years. By 2025, two thirds of all adults in the state ages 25 to 34 should have a post secondary credential. So that's the goal. The state's made a lot of headway, but recent reports show that Colorado still has the largest gap in the nation between whites and Latinos getting bachelor's degrees. Ah, that is a difficult distinction for Colorado to carry. What is the state doing about it? It's focusing a lot on what research shows is the most effective approach, and that's giving grants to warm hands-offs, handoffs, basically organizations that create a relationship with a first-generation student. That's a student who's the first in their family to go to school. And so it could be mentoring them, helping them fill out financial aid forms, and then keeping tabs on them when they're in college. Warm handoffs, I guess, between high school and college. Yes. Okay. Is the state putting dollars behind this? Yeah. First, I should say Colorado is 46th in the nation for giving money to college students. So there's not a lot of money. But in 2014, Colorado passed a law setting up the Colorado Scholarship Initiative. It's a way to kind of leverage public and private support. It's helped 17,000 students so far and has raised millions of dollars more in private dollars. It sounds like it could be expensive to get first generation kids to and through, right? That's so important, through college. 
Exactly. Dropout rates are high. Uh, It's very expensive, this kind of case management approach. The Denver Scholarship Foundation, I checked in with them, and it costs about $460 per student. Plus, that group gave out $5 million in scholarships last year just to help students pay for college. And Ryan, it's really hard to convey just how many monumental stumbling blocks there are to first-generation students finishing college. Uh, As one sociologist put it, poverty is a powerful foe. And in tomorrow's documentary, when asked what those barriers are, that sociologist, here's his reply. Uh, The list is too long for your show. (laughs) The list is too long. Well, Jenny, in 2013, you reported on some of those barriers and how first-generation students were being helped. And one of those students was Anna Oaxaca. Yes, Anna is a young Latina who, in high school, she told me she thought her future would be working at McDonald's the rest of her life or cleaning houses like like her mom. Like I thought only, not to be stereotyped, but only white people go to college, only rich people go to college. And like I'm here like saying I'm Latino and I am come from a low-income household. So I was like, what's the point of going towards an education? But Anna really liked learning. She was good at math, uh, but she sometimes stumbled in reading. She would flip words around. And this is the wild thing. It was a chance encounter with a teacher, a math teacher, that really put her on another path. Um, She said, she asked him one day, you know, how, how to spell a word. And he said he didn't know. I was like, I'm not the only one. I was like, wow, a teacher? He's a teacher and he doesn't know how to spell a word. Maybe I can go that far, too. Then she got lucky. A counselor pushed her to enroll in a program called College Summit. It was an intensive program, and it really helps kids make that mental shift to, hey, I really am college material. I can do it. It prepped them on what college was like, and it was also a safe space for them to talk about issues at home, everything from, you know, what it's like when you don't have enough to eat or convincing parents that going to college is really the right thing to do instead of going to work right after high school. And CU Boulder was Anna Oaxaca's dream college. All right. It's the big question. Did she get in? She did. And it was quite a journey. She goofed up on financial aid forms and nearly lost her spot. But it was so important. I remember she carried around her acceptance letter with her in her backpack. Just as a sign of pride. So sweet. Yes. Lovely. Well, I understand that you recently caught up with Anna and she has almost graduated from CU. It was really thrilling. I got to tell you, I almost thought she wouldn't be there. Um, She dropout rates are really high amongst first generation students. She's entering her sixth year, majoring in math full time, working all Almost full time. She told me college has been a real roller coaster with a lot of ups and downs. Definitely not what she was expecting. Oh, how so? Well, her freshman year was a lot like high school, she says. Actually, it was one of the best years of her life. Sophomore year, classes suddenly got way harder and she didn't feel prepared. Um, she tells me in high school, she never even learned really how to study for an exam. I remember just crying because I would fail an exam. And basically in high school, I would never fail an exam and I will never study for it. So studying and um, just basically learning how to learn in college was just a really difficult process because it's so fast paced. Learning how to learn. That's such an interesting way to put it. 
Yeah. And that's a really familiar complaint with a lot of uh, students from low-income backgrounds. There's this culture of college, you know, just some of those skills like how to study, how to organize my things, how to balance all of the different elements of life uh, is really difficult. And by the second year, she was, there, there were money problems too, commuting from her home in Denver to save money. Uh, she had a big car payments, was working 20 to 30 hours a week. School kept getting harder. And by her third year, there was a lot of turbulence uh, with her living situation. Everything just came crashing down. Dealing with school, family, work, and friends just was a lot for me. But I understand Oaxaca didn't feel isolated. She was in a support group for first-generation students uh, and yet had a hard time asking for help. I grew up being bullied my whole life. So just asking for help, I just have this anxiety of people are just going to judge me. People are just going to make me think I'm stupid. And at the end, I end up not asking for help. And it would just make me feel so bad about myself. It got pretty bad. She sunk into a depression and she thinks she lost at least two years just floundering. But she finally faced up to it. She got help. She got into group therapy and started really feeling a lot better about herself. She also got encouragement to talk to her professors and learned how to go to other students to ask for academic help. And so she's doing much better now in her sixth year, I guess. Yes. Uh, But this year is going to be an exhausting grind, I understand. Yeah, she's a math teaching assistant, so helping... Uh, you know, freshman students with math and works 20 to 25 hours a week at FedEx just to pay the bills. Uh, Once she told me all she ate was ramen noodles for six months. She couldn't afford anything else. Uh, She'll graduate with about 30,000 in loans. But I'm very excited because the thing is, I'm going to have a bachelor's degree, which nobody in my family ever had, like not even cousins or uncles or anyone in my family. Jenny, we we heard from Anna about some of her challenges. We haven't gotten into why Colorado's gap, especially between Latinos and whites, is so big and what can be done about it. Yeah, I talked with some state officials who've really looked at what's happening in other states that are seeing more success at narrowing the gap. So to the first part of your question, this is interesting. A lot of people have been thinking about this. One theory is demographics. Take Florida, uh, which has one of the smallest degree gaps in the nation between Latinos and whites, and Georgia, which has a much bigger uh, black population. Blacks and Hispanics are more rooted in those states, uh, making them more economically stable and more likely to go to college. So, So Colorado has a bigger gap because if you look at the Latino population here, it's relatively new. Um, There's lots of mobility. Many are undocumented, and that makes it much harder for them to go on to college. So the question will be how Colorado can, in a way, make them feel more rooted, more connected to the system of higher education. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine on the challenges first-generation college students face. And be sure to join us tomorrow as Colorado Matters presents Still Rising, First-Generation College Students a Decade Later. It's a special from American Public Media. There are memorial services for the late Senator John McCain today and tomorrow in Arizona and Washington, D.C., Then he's laid to rest this weekend at the Naval Academy Cemetery in Maryland. We reached a former Senate colleague of McCain's, Democrat Ken Salazar of Colorado, who also served as Secretary of the Interior. When I became a U.S. Senator, I was given a choice of uh, one mentor. 
And I told the Senate leadership that I wanted to have two mentors, a Democrat and a Republican. And I specifically wanted to have John McCain as a mentor because I knew him and uh, my family adored him and knew him as uh, a real American leader and uh, somebody who spoke his voice. So uh, great admiration for my family for him. I'm not sure that I knew Senators chose mentors. What was something you learned from him? He um, would take me uh, to lunch and we would talk about his own experience in the Senate, the importance of being independent, about not always following the party line or the party bosses. He taught me the, the appropriate decorum of the Senate. You know, it's a place where people can get very antagonistic and, and very uncivilized at times. And uh, he always knew the boundaries. He knew when it was right to challenge someone and when uh, one would step over the line. So he was a great friend. Um, you know, we, he and I worked closely together on uh, comprehensive immigration reform with Senator Ted Kennedy. We would uh, work on that every single day of the week when we were on the floor for about three months. Then at other times when uh, we joined the Gang of 14, he and I helped defuse the nuclear bomb relative to judicial nominations at that time. And there were just many other things. He was was quite the leader in terms of bringing people together to do the right thing. The Gang of 14 that you referenced, this was in the spring of 2005. And indeed, it was about uh, avoiding the so-called nuclear option that had to do with judicial nominations. And, and and Senator, it's so interesting because on the two issues you mentioned, the the nuclear option and immigration reform, Congress seems to be back in a pickle here. The more things change, the more they stay the same? I, I don't know. Well, so it was 2005. You know, he I uh, first started working with him um, shortly after the 2004 election and stayed close to him even during my time as Secretary of Interior. Uh, my own view of Washington today is that it's dysfunctional, both in the White House and in the Congress and both chambers, the Senate and the House. And I think what John McCain really stands for is uh, that we need to have the more bold, authentic leadership that John McCain so exemplified in his service. And for him, it was country above power. He never put politics above the principal issues that uh, he stood for. He didn't mind bucking the president of his own party or standing up against the Democrats when he thought that was right. And uh, I think that today in 2018, given the divisiveness that we see in Washington, the inability to solve problems, that what we need to have is many more people like John McCain. Did you disagree with him? I mean, he and I would disagree on some issues. I don't remember the specific votes. I I do remember (laughs) one time being in a meeting in the White House, and uh, it was with President Bush and Majority Leader Frist at the time, uh, Bill Frist and Senator Harry Reid, Minority Leader. I was in a conversation with the president about what I think he should do as President of the United States to try to get us to a resolution on immigration reform. And I remember John basically said, no, that's not the president's issue. That's our issue. And we need to resolve it in in the Senate. And I argued back saying, no, we need the leadership of the president. It got a little heated. So the next day, 
on the floor of the Senate. I went and I sat down by him and I just said, John, I, you know how much I respect you, but I did not think that that exchange was a good one because I think we need the leadership of the president to get this done. And he said, yeah, 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 I understand. And, you know, you and I will continue to work together. There were times on the floor of the Senate where he would come up to me when we were in the middle of some very heated, rancorous debates. And it was Democrats versus Republican. And there were amendments being proposed basically to get political advantage of the other side. And uh, he would counsel me on don't get involved in that because uh, that's not how we ought to be doing things here. So it's a sad day for America, but it's also a glorious day. And that I think, like with all deaths, it's important for us to recognize the goodness of people and to be able to be in a position where we can say, what is the lesson? What is uh, the example? What is it that we can do more of to emulate the good parts of his life? And certainly there was a lot of goodness in his life. Well, thank you for sharing your memories with us. It's my honor. Thank you very much. Former Democratic Senator from Colorado Ken Salazar remembering his friend and colleague John McCain. Salazar later served as Secretary of the Interior. McCain died of cancer this past weekend at age 81, just shy of his 82nd birthday. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News in Centennial.